A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this next episode in our Great American Jewish Cities series of Seattle, um, this episode has been generously sponsored in memory of Rabbi Solomon Maimon Zatzal, who served the Jewish community of, of Seattle his entire life. So before we jump into Seattle, just a couple of points. Um, the Montreal crowd has, has not stopped uh, sending feedback about last week's episode. So two major omissions, apparently, that I made on that episode. One was that I neglected to mention that William Shatner uh, comes from uh, Montreal and is a major component of uh, Montreal's Jewish history. And Lahavdil, um, Reb David Flam, who was the Olesk Stretton Rebbe, was the son-in-law of Reb Meisha Langer, was the Stretton Rebbe of Toronto. I mentioned actually the Tolna Rebbe in that episode, who was another son-in-law. But Reb David Flam was a Rebbe in Montreal in the early years, later on in Meish Arim. He was actually raised as a young orphan by the Rebbe Rabbi Sachardayv of Bells and his son, Rabbi Stroll Flam, was actually the uh, principal of Yeshiva Spring Valley in Muncie, where, where I went to school as a child. Um, moving on to Seattle, so I would like to thank several knowledgeable individuals who, who very graciously assisted with the sources, research, stories uh, for this episode, all of whom wish to remain anonymous. I guess uh, Seattleites are very modest, um, so thank you. And and uh, in not not only in regards to Seattle, but in general, uh, in general for Jewish history sound bites, um, I wanted to thank uh, Menachem Butler, a fountain of information about everything, and he constantly points out sources and information, which greatly enhances the Jewish History Soundbites podcast, so a big thank you for everything that he does um, for um, for Jewish History Soundbites. And we move into um, Seattle, a um, great city in the Pacific Northwest. In general, it's a, a, 
city that has some of the greatest companies in the world are based or were based in or around Seattle in that area. Boeing, um, Microsoft, Amazon, um, quite a number of famous people in general in the general society or history have come from Seattle. Like uh, I mentioned Microsoft to so Bill Gates and in in the culture, you have Jimi Hendrix, who is from Seattle, Gary Larson from the far side, and and then the other side of the spectrum, you have even someone like Ted Bundy, who we're definitely not going to get into in the context of this uh, podcast. So we're, we're going to try to focus on is, is how do the Jews come into all that, and what's the Jewish community like, and how does it develop? So Seattle develops in several stages. Um, one of the major... Uh, eras that usher in a new, I'm sorry, events that usher in a new era to um, to Jewish Seattle, like in, like in general for the area of the Pacific Northwest, was the Klondike Gold Rush in the Yukon, the last years of the 19th century, 1896, 1897, and it goes on till 1899. That is a major boom for the economy. Um, it transforms the economy of Seattle, essentially. That is the early history of the Jewish community there. That's when many of the Jewish immigrants who are anyways arriving in droves during that time, so many of them settled down um, in Chicago. You yeah, have to understand the Jewish migration to the Pacific Northwest comes from, it's not just Seattle, it's a lot of large, large Jewish other Jewish communities in the area or even on the West Coast in general. San Francisco also is a similar story, is that it comes from two directions. Number one, it's the last stop from the East, um, People who are moving from the east and they're trying to get away from the crowded uh, New York or places like that, and they're looking for places and they go across America. The last place they arrive at is a place like Seattle. There's nowhere else to go. So some of them ended up settling there. And on the other hand, it became actually a destination, a first stop. Um, people coming from Siberia or from Vladivostok, from the other side of Russia, Jews who had traveled uh, east in the Russian Empire instead of west, so they ended up bumping into places like San Francisco or Seattle uh, first, and that's how they ended up settling there. And the second uh, great transformation of the city, and again in a general sense, not necessarily related to the Jews, is World War II. Um, because of the Pacific Theater and the nature of things was... Um, um, you know, shipbuilding, Boeing, planes, the industry was booming, and, and uh, Seattle essentially became a city on the map because of World War II and the economic boom following that, especially the 1940s and 50s. So it becomes a major, major center. So the Jewish community already at the end of the 19th century have uh, the founding of the Biker Cholim Shul, and both the major Ashkenazi and the major Sephardic shuls of uh, of Seattle were called Biker Chaylam. I'm, I'm not sure if it's because there was a lot of sick people in Seattle in those days, or just that's how the end name ended up. Um, so the Ashkenazic shul was founded in 1891, and eventually merges with the other uh, Ashkenazic shul and several others, but one of them one of them merged with the uh, with um, with it in 1971, the Machziki Hadas shul, which I'm going to get to. So one of the early rabbis there was a very f important and famous individual named Reb Shalom Pinchas Volgalenter. Volgalenter. He was a rabbi in Bikr Khan for many years. And uh, today, for some reason, 
He's famous because when he had to leave Seattle for a short period of time, when his wife was uh, was was ill, so Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky took his position. That was his, Rabbi Yaakov's first rabbinical position in uh, in the New World in America. So um, and he was there for which was arranged by a friend of Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky who also lived in Seattle, Alter Poplak. Um, but but aside from from uh, being very very nice to Rabbi Yaakov and and uh, for that short period of time when he wasn't able to be in town, he left his position at the Beaker Cholim Shul for him. But he, in his own right, was a very uh, prestigious and important uh, individual. He came from a, a big uh, re- Polish rabbinic family, from, from actually from Ostrovce, which was a, you know, uh, an important town in Poland. In fact, I was in Ostrovce with a group a couple of years ago, and we the, the, the cemetery there is destroyed, and we were looking through matze- you know broken matzevas and... Uh, and we actually found a, you know, it's a, it was a very prominent family in the town. We found a Volgalenter kever uh, on the Matseva in, in that destroyed cemetery. In any event, Rabbi Volgalenter was very active in the Vat Hatzala during the war, very prominent activist, one of the biggest activists in the Vat Hatzala. He was a prominent member in the American rabbinic world. Um, the, he had other members of his family there. He had a brother who was a short stint in Seattle, but it was also a, a rabbi in in, uh, in Ontario and Hamilton, and also in Detroit, um, uh, who was a, uh, a rabbi in, in uh, a, at the same time. His brother's uh, daughter um, is actually the famous researcher, Professor Tamar Ross. Um, so that's another yichus there. Um, rabbi Volgalenter was a member of the Mizrahi, and he was a very strong and dynamic. Uh, leader for many years in the Seattle scene. But perhaps one of the most famous rabbis in Seattle was Rabbi Baruch Shapiro. He uh, lived a long life, a fascinating individual. He was born in 1883 in Lita. He's in Dvinsk. He had smicha from the Arsameach, or Meir Simcha of Dvinsk. He was also close with the Ragachover, Rabbi Yosef Rosen in Dvinsk. And he arrives in the United States in the early 1900s. He was in, in Ritz, wasn't yet YU, it was Rabbi Yitzchak still in those days, and uh, he was very active in the, in, in the Ritz uh, life, first as a student, and then later he even taught there when he was still single, and in 1913 he makes it out to, he was on, um, he was touring America on behalf of the Mizrahi, and he makes it out to Seattle, where he got a shidduch. He was, he, he married Hinda Gershanovich, whose parents were in Seattle because they made a living selling food to the gold miners in the decade a decade earlier. So um so he ends up in and he settles down there. He marries uh Rebitson Hinda and they settle down in uh in um in Seattle. Um he in it's interesting his like I said his connection to Reitz he he had led or was part of at least a one of the most famous incidents of the early years of Reitz uh, was a student strike in 1908, and um, and uh, there was an article on this forum blog uh, way back about uh, about that student strike and the role that Rabbi Shapiro, the young Rabbi Shapiro, played in it. And later on, he um, I, I recently uh, saw a letter that that Rabbi uh, 
that Rabbi Shapiro wrote to the East Coast, to the famous Beagleisen Svarim store, which is the, the, the grandfather, the original owner of Beagleisen, and he was asking him to, to send him a list of Svarim. And one of the Svarim that he mentions is the Ragachover's Sefer, the one who he knew, uh, the, the Rabbi Yosef Rosen, the Ragachover, the Tzafnas Paneach. And at the end of the letter, he sends regards to one of the earliest Rashi Yeshiva of, of uh, Reitz, Rabbi Bernstein, who later lived in San Francisco, as he also made it to the West Coast. But either way, Rabbi Shapiro is the he's first affiliated with Biker Cholim. Uh, that didn't work out, so he left that shul and he started. There was another shul he was involved in, which was had the ironic name of the Theodore Herzl Shul, which later became conservative. And he left that shul, and then he started the Machziki Hadas. Him and a group of uh, Balabatim, and they. Um, and they, he uh, he was he was the rav there in the Machzik Adas for forty years until it merged, it, it closed and it merged with the Biker Cholim Shul. Um, he was very involved in learning and in in the community, in a in a quieter quieter but in a, in a sideway. He was never the main rabbi in charge. He was never the chief rabbi, but he was very involved in in his own way. He gave shiurim. He would study. Gemara with the high school age kids. There was no Jewish day school in those days, and there and there was definitely no Jewish high school. And he would give them a Gemara shiurim, and he would encourage them to go to yeshivas on the East Coast in New York. Among them, or another famous uh, uh, Seattle family, the Wolpen boys, including the late Reb Nissen Wolpen, uh, the editor, longtime editor of the Jewish Observer, and uh, he was one of those sent by Reb Shapiro to. Uh, to learn in uh, on the East Coast in Tarvadas. In fact, uh, Reb Nissen Wolpen said, uh, wrote that uh, that when his oldest brother, the oldest Wolpen brother, was going to be going to yeshiva, so Rabbi Shapiro banged on the bima in shul, and he announced that this you know, 14, 15, 16-year-old boy, this teenager, would be going to yeshiva on the East Coast, and everyone should accompany their delegate to yeshiva, the yeshiva delegate to the train station the next day. And several dozen members of the shul actually did. They went to see him off at the train station. He was going to learn Tyra in the yeshivas in New York. And, um, and then when they would come back for vacation, he would invite these, again, young teenagers to address the congregation when they came home. He wrote Gittin um, in the area. He corresponded in halachic queries to Reb Chaim Eisegrudensky in Vilna. He was very close with the Blazer Silver of Cincinnati. It's interesting when he when he passed away, they discovered his will, which had been written several years earlier, which play which where he he never had children. His wife predeceased him, and he never had children, unfortunately. So he you know gave out his his estate. He wrote where he's giving his his money to. So first he had a long list of uh, yeshivas and organizations. He wanted to leave over part of his assets to the Agudas Rabbanim, to Agudas Yisrael in America, to Taravadas to MTJ, to Lakewood, to Lubavitch Yeshiva, to Satmar Yeshiva, to the Panavish Rav's Batei Avais in Bnei Brak, to the Chinuch in Israel. And then he also left a percentage of, this, of his assets to hire a rabbi for Seattle, who would be a great Torah scholar, subject to the approval of Rav Meisha Feinstein, or Blazer Silver, and Rav Aaron Cutler. The, the latter two, he, he outlived them. They were no longer alive by the time he passed away. But he emphasized that this rabbi needs to be a big paisik and a big gadol be Yisrael. And as a result of the will of the rabbi who was hired was Ramesha Londinsky, 
who was uh, who was close actually with another personality I'm going to get to, uh, Senator Henry Scoop Jackson, and was the catalyst for a story with the Skalena Rebbe, which hopefully we'll have a chance to get to. Um, Baruch Shapiro never became a U.S. citizen, interestingly enough. He had a lawyer who was a member of his shul who was helping him file the papers to become a U.S. citizen. And when it came to a clause that he, he had to sign to that, he's, he's saying that I solemnly swear that I'll, I don't know the exact uh, exact language of the of of the uh, of what he was signing, but it was along the lines that he would join the military should he be called on to defend the country, and should that need arise, he would he would join the military, so he refused to sign. He said, it's an untrue statement. I don't plan on joining the military anytime soon. So his lawyer explains to him, don't worry about it, they're never going to call you up, and you don't know English, you only know Yiddish, and you're older, and they're not calling you to come to the door, just sign it. And he says, no, it's not 100% true and honest, I can't sign. And he never became a U.S. citizen as a result. Um, his wife was no less of a personality, Rebetzin Hinda Shapiro, uh, amazing and beloved figure in the, in the community. She was literally, again, like she had none of her, no children of her own, so she adopted all the children of the town. She was like a mother of everyone, not just to the children, but to take care, taking care of everyone's needs in the community. She, she took special care for the children. She would even give them shiurim and all kinds of subjects. She was like a Talmud Chacham, and she gave shiurim on all kinds of areas of Torah, and Shabbos afternoon she would have Pirkei Ovis and Chomish Rashi, and uh, and she would also impart her values. Reb Nissen Wolpen also recalled her disdain for money. She once uh, said, "Gelt is gematria blotte. Money is has the numerical value of mud in Yiddish. The same the word is as the gematria of of, of mud." And uh, and then when she would notice the children running out when the Torah was taken out in shul, she would say to the children, she noticed that they were running out and to go play games because now they're laning the Torah. She would say, how can you run out when it says, The enemies of God run out. You children, you're the most beloved to God. How could you be the ones running out? You guys got to stay in. She even convinced Rimnis and Wolpen, a young bar mitzvah boy, to start joining the 645 minion uh, every morning, and the incentive that she did to, to to convince him to do that was that she would deliver hot breakfast to him every morning. She herself went to to shul every morning. In those days, um, Seattle was host to many of the European Russia yeshiva who um, who would be collecting, and they would arrive in town, and they would be accorded the honor. Baruch Shapir would host them, and uh, and uh, and uh, um, specifically. Um, one who was close with was Ramesha Mordechai Epstein, the Slabatki Yeshiva, who who came uh, who came uh, on at least one occasion to uh, to Seattle to raise funds for the Yeshiva. Speaking of Slabatka, another um, Slabatka Talmud who was a rav in the area was Rav Alter Poplak, who I mentioned. It was close with Rav Yaakov Rav Cutler, of Hutner. He was part of that whole chevra of Slabatka Talmidim. And he was a rav in Seattle, and later on he he was in Israel. And that brings us to Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky coming to Seattle. He described his traveling to Seattle by train. Uh, it was uh, around the the holiday season, Roshaniyim Kippur Sukkis. He was in Chicago, and he made it to Minneapolis for Shabbos. From Minneapolis for Shabbos, he was in Fargo, North Dakota for Yom Kippur. He was then in Priest River, Idaho, 
for Shabbos, then Spokane, Washington, for the first days of Sukkot, and he arrives in Seattle on Cholomite. And he used to describe just that going across America in the 1930s, what it was like when he arrives there, Rabbi Shalom Pinchas Vargalenter was still there, and he accorded him very, very high honors. He didn't want to sit in front of the shul when Rabbi Yaakov was there. And Rabbi Yaakov got very emotional. It was a very powerful moment because this is not something that everyone did in the United States at that time. And here the rabbi of the Biker Cholom Shul himself is according him such a special honor. He was eternally grateful, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, for what Rabbi Shalom Pinchas uh, did for him. He also helped him find the job afterwards. He arranged him the Toronto position. When Rabbi came back to town, he arranged for Rabbi Yaakov to move on. And he was... Uh, very grateful for what he had done for him. Now, when Ryakov arrives there, he throws himself into the issue of Jewish education. He tries to promote um, Jewish educational values and to try to impart it to the parents that they need to get, they need to they need to instill the Jewish values into their children and not just uh, rely on on the public school education and the afternoon Talmud Torah. Uh, he got close with the Wolpen family at that time, who I mentioned, and he and Ryakov said. That because he saw that that uh, Rabbi Ephraim Wolpen, Rabbi Nissim Wolpen's father, was able to to educate his kids in a Torah way, uh, then that gave him the inspiration and the confidence that he his, his children were still back in Setevian in Europe that to be, he could bring over his children and he'll be able to raise them as Erlicha children in America also. Another person who was in uh, also connected somewhat to Slabatka, who was in Seattle during the time, an amazing book. Um, about the life of, of Rabdov Kohn. And a very interesting story. This Rabdov uh, Kohn, his parents came as poor immigrants to America, and they make it to Seattle at some point, where he is born. This Dove is born in 1911. And in 1925, when the family is already more financially secure, the, the, the boy is 13, 14 years old. The mother decides that there's no Tyra future in Seattle or anywhere in America for that matter. So she decides to take him to Eretz Yisrael. Uh, and, and in 1920s, the, the, the mother and her son, the rest, the father and the other siblings stay behind in Seattle. And in, 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 at that time, in that era, it's an amazing thing. And they go to, and they eventually, he bounces around a couple of places in Eretz Yisrael, eventually makes it to the Hebron Yeshiva, which was in Hebron still at the time, in 1926. And it was in Hebron, the altar was still alive, an amazing journey. And I always thought that the Hebrew title of that book, Vayelchu Shnehem Yachtav, the two of them went together, meaning him and his mother, sounded much better than the English title of the same book, which was To Rise Above, which, uh, all right. Either way, another prominent family at the time, who I mentioned several times already, was uh, Reb Nissen Wolpen's family, big Seattle family. All the brothers went to yeshivas on the East Coast. At young ages, they're literally 14, 15 years old. Um, he was born in Seattle in 1932. And his father was uh, from Pinsk. And he learned in Ritz in Urban Yitzchakhanan. And he, then he ships out to Seattle to become a Malamed, to become a, a afternoon teacher. And when his son, Reb Nissen Wolpen, is 15 years old, he sends him to Taravadas because there was no day school there and he had to go to yeshiva. And uh, and that's what happened. That's how Rav Wolpen became Rav Nissen Wolpen. Another Rav who was there at the time, um, in the he was there for about ten years, from the late thirties to the late forties, was Rav Chaim Yaakov Levin, Levine, who was a son of Rabbi Levine, the famous uh, Tzaddik of Yerushalayim. His 
is the father of, of Benji Levine, who gives tours in Yerushalayim, also an interesting individual. So he was a rev in Seattle also. He was later on in Jersey City. And he was involved with starting a yeshiva. Not really a yeshiva, it was like an afternoon yeshiva. It wasn't a formal yeshiva. Named after uh, Reb Chaim Eiser, uh, Reb Chaim Eiser Grudensky of Vilna. The yeshiva was called Yeshiva Rabbeinu Chaim Eiser. It was like an afternoon Talmud Torah. And, and this Reb Chaim Yaakov Levine was close with the Baron Cutler and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, discussed this yeshiva with him. And what's interesting is that his father, Abari Levine, uh, thought that this, his son was in America, so he's probably no longer religious. And, uh, and Abari Levine received a visitor in 1946, right after World War II. The younger Abnata Greenblatt was back in Eretz Yisrael. And he says, he meets Rabari. And Rabari says, do you know my son? What's happening with him? Is he even still religious? Is he observant? And he says, your son is a Rav. He's a Talmud Chacham. He has a yeshiva named after Reb Chaim Eiser. He's doing well. And he says, wow, I was sure if he's in America, and I, who knows what happened to him. He said, let me tell you, your son is so involved in learning that he's not really in America. And that kind of reassured Rabari Levine. Another later on in the 1960s, Another uh, prominent rabbi was uh, the son of Rabbi Moshe Doiv Berifkin, who was a famous uh, chassid of the Rebbe Rashab of Chabad, and uh, he was the uh, uh, Manal of Torah Vadas uh, for many, many years. So his son, Rabbi Shalom Rivkin, who was famously the chief rabbi, perhaps the last chief rabbi in St. Louis of a major American city, passed away not long ago, so he was a rabbi in Seattle for a little over 10 years, in the Biker Chaylam Shul. A very interesting personality also. But what's a, another very, very important aspect, uh, which I want to discuss for a few minutes, is the, is the Sephardic community in Seattle. Huge influence and a per, huge percentage of the community, probably higher than almost any other Jewish community in the United States. Um, and uh, one of the most perhaps the most important personality in that context was Rabbi Solomon Maimon, who just passed away last year at the age of 100. He's talking about he was a essentially a rabbi. He was in Seattle almost his entire life, and he was essentially the rabbi there for close to 75 years, which is probably a world record for the rabbinate altogether. He was, a like most of the Sephardic community in Seattle, he was from Turkey, um, and he lived almost his entirely. He came at five years old. In fact, when he was on the boat, and he arrived in 1924, uh, when he was a five-year-old, he was with his siblings on the boat with his father, who was also a rabbi. And uh, and it was during a storm when the boat was on was at the high, on the high seas, and the father gathered his children together, and he said, "We have to promise that we're going to keep Shabbos when we get to the, our new home, to the new country, to the United States." And and then in the midst of this storm, they all promised that they would keep Shabbos, and uh, and that's it. They were ready to to immigrate. So he was a he he left. Uh, his father became a rabbi in uh, his father was a rabbi in Turkey, and and then he becomes the rabbi of the Sephardic Biker Cholim Shul. Um, he passed away quite young, but his uh, his son also went east. He became he became a student at YU. And he got smicha from Rav Solveitchik. Um, he was a Talmud of his, really in the early years. He, was, uh, he got smicha from him in 1944. Um, he became a rabbi and moved back to, to Seattle. And uh, he's perhaps one of the first or the first uh, Sephardic uh, rabbinical student to be get a, a YU smicha. 
and um and he uh he he became the rabbi i think i I think I think he had a son living in Muncie, and I believe that I even had the privilege of meeting uh, Rabbi Solomon Maimon once when I was a child. Um, Rabbi Maimon, um, he was involved in everything. He started the first Seattle Hebrew Day School, which evolved into the Hebrew Academy. He started that in 1947, which met with resistance at the time, but he was a very charismatic individual. He's a visionary, what he had plans for and he had a vision for. He was doing Kirov in Seattle before there was such a thing as Kirov. He saw a need that there is a need for a mile, so he became a mile. And he did over a thousand brisses in the area of the Pacific Northwest, including going out to Alaska to perform a bris. And he heavily invested in the youth. That's where his main focus was. He started a Sephardic adventure camp in 1957 to give the second generation a sense of their Sephardic heritage. Um, he started the first Northwest Yeshiva High School, the Seattle Kyle, the Seattle Torah Day School. He was the Avbezdin of the Seattle Vad. He gave Shiurim. He was there giving advice to, to members of the community. He was a very warm, magnetic personality, very charismatic, very beloved. When he would shake people's hands, and today it sounds like a foreign concept to, to shake someone's hand because with the corona we don't do that anymore. But the idea of the closeness of shaking someone's hands, so he used to, let's remind ourselves of it, so he used to say to people that he would shake their hands, he would say, Yad is a hand, that's 14. So uh, so that's, uh, that's so when there's two hands, what happens when there's two hands? The two people shake hands together. So 14, two Yads is 28. What's 28? Koyach, strength. So when two people shake hands together, they're giving each other strength. And he was very uh, particular about keeping the old uh, Sephardic Turkish customs. He was very proud that his grand imparted it to his children, to his students, to sing in Ladino the songs that he grew up with. He would have them say Manishtana in Ladino, the the um, the Jewish language of the of the Ottoman Empire, parts of the Ottoman Empire. He was very full of life. One time he was speaking to a class of children. He said a Dvar Torah, and then he would repeat it. He re- he asked the children to repeat it after him, so that they would internalize what he was saying. And then after he got to the punchline of the Dvar Torah, he said to the children, now repeat after me, wow! And he had all the children repeat, wow, so they should get into the excitement of the Dvar Torah also. And uh, he, like I said, he lived till he was 100 years old, and he was always young. He would, he would visit people in the old age home when he was close to 100 years old. All the people there were younger than him. And uh, at the end of his life, he was asked, what was your biggest accomplishment? And he said, when people needed me, I was there for them. Another prominent Svarti, uh, Svartic Jew who was left his imprint in, in Seattle was Samuel Israel. He came from Rhodes, and in 1919, uh, he settles in Seattle. He goes into the shoe industry, the shoe business, and he moves on to investing in real estate. Became extremely wealthy. His real estate was all over Washington State, including uh, places in downtown Seattle. And uh, he never married. And he left uh, in his will to start a, a foundation, which till today plays a very, very important and prominent role called the Samiz uh, Foundation in, in Jewish life and education in Seattle itself, as well as in, in Israel. So Samuel Israel is, uh, is one of the builders of uh, Jewish life then in his own way. Um, if we go uh, from the micro to the macro, the Sephardic 
Jewish community in Seattle comes from mainly from Turkey and Rhodes. And they arrive in the early decades of the 20th century when the Ottoman Turkish Empire is falling apart, and especially after uh, following World War I with the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and the Young Turks and Kemal uh, Ataruk's uh, revolution. Um, so they were, um, this very established community was very involved subsequently in helping Jews escape from the area when Mussolini came to power and, and, and had a presence in the Balkans, and, um, and then World War II began. So, um, so they tried to, you know, help many Jews escape, which augmented the community as well. I'll give you an example. They helped uh, Rabbi Dr. Isidore Kahn come to Seattle. And who was he? It was Kahn. He was a Hungarian who later on settled in Italy and, uh, and then became the head of the modern rabbinical seminary in Rhodes and then taught in a, in a Jewish institution in Rome. A very knowledgeable individual, very brilliant uh, uh, man. Um, uh, broad, and uh, in, in the 1930s, he's trying to get out of, of, uh, of Italy, of Rome, because of Mussolini and fascism, and, and there is uh, anti-Jewish legislation in the mid-1930s already in Italy. He actually sent a letter to, again, this is a Hungarian Rav, who had spent many, many years already in Italy and in Rhodes, uh, leading Sephardic congregations. So he sends this letter to Rabbi Dr. Leo Jung in New York, and he is a line in the letter that he writes that I'll come, I'll come out to, to America, even if it's for a position with an Ashkenazi congregation. In other words, this Hungarian rabbi was so used to the Sephardic uh, uh, communities that he had led that he was more comfortable there. And uh, that says a lot about uh, the Sephardic uh, uh, congregations that he led. Uh, maybe it says a lot about Sephardim in general. Um, he was much more comfortable there, and he said, but I'm so desperate to come out that I'll even come out if the only position I can get is an Ashkenazi one. So in 1939, you know, thank God he didn't have to get an Ashkenazi one. The Biker Cholim Sephardic congregation uh, invites him, and he becomes there, and eventually he leads a Rhodes uh, a Jewish community within uh, Seattle called the Ezra Besaroth uh, Shul, and he passes away in 1961. He was very prominent. He published articles. He published a Sephardic Siddur. And speaking of the in that influence, there's a contemporary um, Sephardic rabbi from originates from Seattle, Rabbi Mark Engel, um, who also he came his ancestry is from Turkey and Rhodes, and he grew up speaking Ladino. And um, it's interesting. I once in the in the uh, in the, again when we used to do the home interviews before Corona, so I interviewed once a uh, survivor from Rhodes, a Holocaust survivor. The Nazis had uh, had occupied Rhodes, and in August 1944, they sent uh, 1,600 Jews from Rhodes on a boat to the mainland, and from there in a train to Auschwitz where they were killed. So this guy was a uh, survivor. And just to talk to him about the life in Jewish Rhodes prior to the war, a very different culture, it was very interesting. Either way, going back to Rabbi Engel, Rabbi Mark Engel, so he's he was the, or is, uh, the rabbi of the Spanish-Portuguese synagogue in Manhattan. And he, along with uh, Rabbi Sacher Franz, who I'll get to in a second, and many others of that time, started out in the Reb Chaim Weiser Yeshiva that I mentioned in Seattle. And he's written history books about the Jews of Rose and Sephardic Jewry in America. And today he's a, a prominent leader of what's known as open orthodoxy. Um, we'll stay out of you know contemporary stuff and we'll stay, stick to history. So I mentioned Rabbi Franz, Grew up in Seattle at the time, and he was one of those who were sent to the East Coast. He went to Ner Yisrael at a very young age, 
later became a Rebbe in Yisrael, and is a famous, world-famous speaker, a prominent Rebbe in Yisrael, and uh, still still connected to his uh, Seattle uh, roots. Another uh, family that played a role over generations in Seattle was the Genauer family in the Jewish communal history uh, of the development of the Jewish community in, in Seattle. And there's another individual who I want to point out, again, going back way back to the early days, an individual by the name of Samuel Goldfarb. Samuel Goldfarb was born in Shinov, which is, you know, a Galicia town where, you know, where the Divrei Chaim of Tzans, his oldest son, was a Pchatzkel of Shinov. So this Samuel Goldfarb, his family immigrates. He grows up on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. He has an incredible music career, a very talented individual. He wrote and developed music with George Gershwin, with Yasela Rosenblatt, with the Kosovitsky brothers, Meisha Kosovitsky and his brothers, even for Molly Pekan of the Yiddish Theater. In other words, he's, he's uh, with everyone on the music scene, a very diverse crowd. He later moves west to L.A., but he settles in Seattle as a choir director, and he's involved with the Reformed Temple de Hirsch Sinai in Seattle. Adult choirs, children's choirs, in the Beaker Cholim Sephardic uh, Shul, he runs the Sephardic Choir, a very tremendous musical influence on the community, he passes away in 1978. And he's actually known as the father of Jewish music in America. You'd ask your average guy who's the father of Jewish music in America, they'd say Shlomo Kaubach, Mordechai ben David, or uh, I don't know, uh, along those lines. So apparently it's Samuel Goldfarb. And uh, if you want to talk about one of his his most important or famous composition is the song I Have a Little Dreidel, which he composed in his pre-Seattle days in 1927. One of the most popular songs in Jewish history, I would uh, venture to, I dare say, I Have a Little Dreidel, I Made It Out of Clay. Um, that's Samuel Goldfarb. And on the subject of music in Seattle, we have the Schlossberg uh, family of Chazanim, Label Schlossberg, and later on his son Nathan, who was a Chazan at the Biker Cholem Shul, and later on, his son, again labeled, named after the grandfather. If you move to the wider context of Jews in, in uh, Seattle, not necessarily um, part of the, uh, the Jewish community, but uh, proud Jews nonetheless. So we have uh, the, um, the, the, the CEO of Starbucks, Howard Schultz, who is in Seattle. And um, a fascinating story with Howard Schultz is his closeness with the late uh, Mira Shashiva of Nassau Finkel. Um, and he described it, and he uh, talked about the relationship that he had with him on many occasions. The first time he met him, the Rosh Hashiva taught him a lesson about the Holocaust, about that the essence of the Jewish spirit during the Holocaust was that very often um, Jews in camps are suffering from inhumane conditions and dehumanization and starvation and the, the terrible conditions uh, that were in the barracks, they would very often make an effort to help others, keep others warm. And he said, that's your job, is to take the blanket that you have and to share it with others. Um, later later visits, subsequent visits to Israel, he would always try to visit the Rashiva. They kept up a relationship. They went to the Kaisel together. Eventually the Rashiva decided to buy him a pair of tefillin. He said, you want to keep one mitzvah? Have tefillin. Whatever you decide about wearing it, I'm not asking, but I want to buy you a pair of tefillin. He got Rabbi Amin Karlbach of the Mir to buy him a pair of tefillin, and um, and uh, and he 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 had them delivered to him. They used to be in contact by phone, um, and 
And uh, when he came once on a Shabbos afternoon to visit, he had a long shmooze at the Rosh Hashiva. And afterwards, when he walks out, he meets the Rosh Hashiva's Chavrusa, who had been waiting for him. And he wanted to know who was this person who, who was taking all the Rosh Hashiva's time. So he tells him, oh, my name is Schultz. And he says, oh, you're the CEO of Star-. So that story that you know the Rosh Hashiva is really true? That's really true? He couldn't believe it. So, um, so the Rosh Hashiva comes out. And they, and they actually, the Rosh Hashiva starts discussing the Gemara that he was going to be learning with his Harusa. He discusses it with Howard Schultz. And, uh, and, and Rosh Hashiva says, Did, you know, are you, are you able to follow? So Howard Schultz asks the question. So he says, Howard, not bad. That's a good question that you're asking. And uh, so they kept up this relationship. Ryama Kalbach uh, would go, went a couple of times out to Seattle to bring uh, messages and a present from the Rashiva, talis, talis bag, a tefillin bag, gift from the Rashiva. The Rashiva never once asked him for a donation for the Rashiva. He gave. He gave voluntarily. Um, and the, the, and he once said to him, once pulled out a checkbook, and, and, and the Rashiva said, put it away. Our relationship is not about money. Um, there is a legend that goes around that, um, that Howard Schultz offered a blank check to, um, to the Rashiva. It never happened. That story never happened. If it would have, if the Rashiva would have received a blank check, and if you knew the Rashiva's personality, the Rashiva Finkel probably would have filled it out for a lot of money. And uh, the last blank check in, in history was probably uh, Kaiser Wilhelm II when he offered Austria-Hungary a blank check in their, in their fight against Serbia. And the end of that story didn't end too well. So blank checks are not the uh, way to go. But as a postscript to the um, Howard Schultz story with the Renaissance Tzvi, the Rosh Hashiva, so my esteemed colleague and research collabor- collaborator and writer, Davi Safir, once happened to meet uh, Howard Schultz um, in New York. And he told him, he said, uh, you know, Mr. Schultz, uh, you and I have something in common. We both love Rabbi Nussin Svi Finkel from the Mir. So Schultz got very teary and emotional, and he said how much he misses him. He said, I want to visit the Rebetzin Finkel in, our, in Israel next time I go. So the connection is, is a real connection. It's not something that, that's made up or a legend, or, but it's a real connection. He, he said at that, on that occasion, he said, not a single day goes by that I don't think of him and remember Rabbi Finkel. Um, another part of Jewish history in, in Seattle was the, the legendary senator, Henry Scoop Jackson, um, who was not Jewish, but he, he um, was very close with the Jews and the Jewish community worldwide. Um, during the Cold War, the Jackson-Vanik am- Amendment of 1974, which restricted trade agreements with countries that had reactionary immigration policies and human rights abuses, and it was mainly targeting the communist bloc um, countries. Um, and uh, they li- the idea was to link trade to human rights, which was a huge uh, novelty in U.S. foreign policy at the time. He was a liberal Democrat who was a tough on communism. He's, there is in, in political theory, there's a, there's a movement that uh, to say that he's an influence on neoconservatism today in, in American politics, but I don't want to get into today's American politics. But he was a tremendous friend of the Jews. He helped Jews emigrate from the Soviet Union. The Jackson-Vanik uh, Amendment had huge ramifications for Jewish emigration. In 1976, a New York Magazine article referred to this Presbyterian senator as the Jewish candidate for president. Uh, the article quoted the Saudi ambassador 
to Washington and, quote, who is this Henry Jackson from 6,000 miles away from Israel, more Jewish than the Jews, more Zionist than the Zionists, end quote. So he was uh, a very close friend of, of the Jews and of Israel, and he was in the Senate for 30 years till his passing. He passed away. He was still in, in the Senate. And a very interesting story with the pre, the original Sklena Rebbe, or Belezuzusha Portugal. He, he got a meeting that, that the, I mentioned earlier, the rabbi in, uh, in the Biker Cholim at the time was Rabbi Shalondinsky. So he had him arrange a meeting for him, um, with the senator, Senator Jackson, to assist with the release of 20 Jews in Romania who had been arrested by the Romanian government. And the Sklena Rebbe simply broke down crying in Senator Jackson's office. And without him having to explain what he was crying about, uh, Senator Jackson, you know, the part, the Sklena Rebbe was from Romania, um, the, uh, and was dedicated to helping the Jews stuck in communist Romania. So Senator Jackson understood what the Rebbe wanted even before the Rebbe uh, explained it to him. And he got the Romanian ambassador on the phone and threatened him with whatever he did until he released the 20 Jews. Um, he said that he, the reason that he likes to help Jews is because he had positive exposure to them as a young uh, child growing up in Washington. Um, strong memories, Shabbos and stuff like that. Um, he, he was an orphan. Jews helped him and his mother. Um, there is one source that says that he was a prosecutor at Nuremberg. I find that hard to believe because he was already a representative um, in Congress. It doesn't sound like he was a prosecutor at Nuremberg. So if anyone knows about that, uh, I'd love to hear more because I, 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 it, doesn't, I know, it doesn't make any sense. Either way, um, I try to get get to wrapping up here. Um, the uh, Howard Schultz, among besides for Starbucks, he also owned the Seattle SuperSonics, the basketball team, for a period of time, and uh, he had the distinction of being involved in getting the team sold and leaving Seattle without a basketball team. They became the Oklahoma City Thunder. The reason I want to talk, the reason I mentioned basketball is because I'd rather not talk about the Mariners since it's the only team in baseball to have never played in the World Series. Although, there was a short-term manager, Bob Melvin, who was Jewish, so there is a connection there. We'll end off with a, today, we mentioned music uh, earlier on, uh, Nissim Black, the great uh, uh, rapper, Jewish from, uh, you know, uh, rapper, talented musician, who was who is from Seattle, converted to Judaism in Seattle, was part of the Jewish community there, and now actually lives down the block from me in Beit Shemesh, uh, recently moved here. So that's a little taste of Jewish Seattle. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeberer.com um, for questions, comments, sources, tours and trips, including virtual tours, virtual live tours we've started doing as well. You can check out the website at YehudaGeber.com. And of course, also subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.